What defines success? You take chances, you take risks, you work with people that you don't know maybe if it's gonna work out or it's not. You take on projects that seem great in the beginning and then they turn out to not be that fruitful. What happens when you get knocked down? By the fall, like everything was falling apart. I lost my job the next year at thestreet.com. What helped me was having that book. What makes some people radiate? You have to be patient because sometimes you won't see a return on your investment. But if you stick with it, if you love it, if you nurture it, ultimately it only makes your brand stronger and it only makes you more successful down the road. This is Radiate. Hi everyone, welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, my friend and personal finance expert, Farnoosh Tarabi, is joining us. Farnoosh is a fellow podcaster with the show So Money. She's also the author of the best-selling book, When She Makes More. And she's now the host of a new primetime television show, Follow the Leader. It's all about entrepreneurs. Now, Farnoosh began her path to becoming a personal finance guru when she hit a speed bump in her career. She got laid off at thestreet.com. Through lots of hard work and ingenuity, she's been able to create a well-known brand. So you're going to learn a lot from Farnoosh. Enjoy. Farnoosh! Betty! Yay! I'm so glad to finally have you on this podcast. I remember um, that you were one of the first people I talked to when I was thinking about um, doing a podcast because you were as well. Mm -hmm. And now your podcast is so popular. Tell me a little bit about, because I think what I, one thing I've always admired about you is that you've been able to build your own brand and you've been able to build it so effectively. So how have you done that? Oh, gosh. Well, I think I what helped was that I, I've been doing this for such a long time, you know, and I think today developing a brand in some respects is harder. There's, there's, there's just more competition out there. There's more noise. How do you get yourself to stand out? It's, um, I think the way you do it these days is, is different than maybe how you would have done it if you'd started out when I was. So when did you, how long ago did you start? So that I would say, I think what really was the game changer for me was writing my first book. In 2008, it came out, You're So Money. I was still working, uh, you know, I was an employee at thestreet.com, um, very much enjoying my job there. But uh, I think one of the things that kind of was born out of necessity for me was trying to make more money as I was living in New York right. and paying off my student loans. And so I was always interested in journalism and, and writing and um, everything that went along with that, telling a story and on different platforms. And so while I was at the street, everything I was doing was more video-based. So I was like, oh, let's write more on the side to make money, but also kind of expand my horizon. Right. That those writings turned into a book. And so were you doing personal finance when you were at the street? A lot of it, but even also I was doing a lot of Wall Street coverage, you know, economic coverage, um, interviewing CEOs, uh, going to the opening bell, closing bell, reporting from the floor. So I got a lot of, and that's why I wanted to go to the street, was to sort of learn how to take these macro issues that are happening at corporate level, market level, and and distill it for the everyday person. So in, in a way, it was still personalizing it, but mm -hmm. uh, I think I grew, a, I grew up a lot there and learned how to really... Um, cover the harder news stories. Right. But always loved personal finance. And my first book was about um, how to manage your money as a young adult, kind of a biographical, <laughs> how I was doing it, attempting to do it. And the book really took on a life of its own. Um, it was also great timing. It was 
2008. Depth which, of the recession. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that we were about to enter such a, a low period. The mm-hmm. book came out in the spring. And then by the fall, like everything was falling apart. I lost my job the next year at thestreet.com. So oh, wow. what helped me was having that book. It so was, thank goodness you had that. Thank goodness. It right. was the parachute. And rather than feeling worrying that I have to go right back into the corporate world, find that job that I just lost in some way, shape or form again, replace that income. I said, you know what, let's just go all in. Let's just go all in. And which is something that I always wanted to do anyway, but I was too scared. Where am I going to get my health insurance? Who's going to pay for my cell phone bill? Because, you know, I was able to get a phone through work. (laughs) Uh, You know, these silly things now when you look back on it, because the reward is so much greater than, you know, the $300, $400, $500 a month that you have to find to pay for your own uh, dental. Um, so it was a blessing in disguise. It was the kick in the pants that I needed. And mm-hmm. thank goodness I had that book because it really, it, what it did for me was it allowed me to have an identity that was mine. No one can take that away from you. And I think, so for me, it was a book. For others today, maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's it's whatever intellectual property that you can, that you can curate and create and control that you can be proud of and have that be your business card and your everything. And so um, you can fall back on it, but you can also leverage it and build on that. So that was really what started it for me. And um you know, to this day, I have people who are like, I've been with you since that first book. You know, it's really nice to see how everything's developed. And, and you know, I've definitely made some mistakes along the way. I've definitely taken Like on- what? Like what was your big, your first, your first mistake? My first mistake was jumping into a second book that I just didn't know what I wanted to write about, but there was a lot of pressure for me to do it because uh, mm-hmm. that's how sometimes the world works. People want to, um, they see a potential in you. They want you to continue creating things so that they can benefit. They want it to be a win-win. My second book, Psych Yourself Rich, I'm really proud of it. I, I you know, think it helped my career a lot. It helped a lot of readers, but it was a painful process. And I, I wouldn't go back and do it the same way. I would have taken more time to write it, more research. Did it come out the year after? It came out two years later, which means I started working on it pretty much right after the first book. And I got the book deal before I even had an idea. Mm. They're like, we just want to work with you. We'll figure it out along the way, which, you know, hey, it good problems to have. Right? Yeah. yeah exactly. you know? <laughs> People, it's like, I don't want to be sounding uh, ungrateful here, but it was. Um, you should have thought a little bit more about it. about it. You know, at least and I, I think I went into a deep, dark depression over it because I, I had writer's block and I was, I had to have this deadline and to come out with the book. And I, I under all that pressure, I think um, I lost the the joy out of doing what I started doing as a passion and now it felt like it was uh torture so anyway that was a lesson learned and then I think along the way too maybe I sold myself too short you know did things for free uh hoping that they would parlay into bigger opportunities and I think that's just a a risk that all I guess if you can call me an entrepreneur that entrepreneurs take you know you you take chances you take risks you work with people that you don't know maybe if it's going to work out or it's not you take on projects that seem great in the beginning and then they turn out to not be that fruitful um I've also learned that um you know as much as I would love to say that my books have sold millions of copies. It's really hard to get your books on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> yeah. list. And I, I, but for me, I still do that sort of work. Well. They, they have, yeah. And I feel like my books are marketing vehicles. You know, their, their books are lost leaders. 
a lot of podcasts are lost leaders, but that's also not a bad thing. You know, if you can turn that into something else, if you can leverage, and that's what I learned is that you have to be patient because sometimes you won't see a return on your investment, whether it's the time and the money you put into a book, a course, a podcast, but if you stick with it, if you love it, if you nurture it, if you listen to your audience and integrate their feedback into whatever, so it's a work in progress that ultimately, um, it only makes your brand stronger and it only makes you more successful down the road because it can lead to so many other things. You mentioned earlier, you said, if I could even call myself an entrepreneur, why don't you call yourself an entrepreneur? Well, I've been spending a lot of time with entrepreneurs lately on the CNBC show, Follow the Leader. And these are like the rock star entrepreneurs of our time. You know, the Warby Parker founders, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who, you know, if you ask him the definition of an, entre- of an entrepreneur, it's somebody who doesn't stop, who is go, 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 who hustles 24-7 and, uh, that's not me. I mean, I hustle, but I also like to come home to my family every night. I like to go on vacation. Some entrepreneurs might say that's lazy. I sort of feel like entrepreneurship is like feminism. Like everyone has their own definition <laughs> and um, you can easily start to, d- to doubt yourself. Am I, a, am I really a feminist? Am I really an entrepreneur? You know? Right. Well, I, so, so that's, I guess, I guess I am an entrepreneur, but when I start to think about the others who are really like upholding the, the term to such a degree, to such a, an, an extent of wealth and richness and success. I'm like, I'm, I'm not changing the world. Maybe I am, but in, in, in a different way. And so I guess I should take more credit for that. Thank you. I think so. Is I mean, coming, it's turning into a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if I can put my I'm own... I'm worth it. <laughs> 100%. You know, I do think the definition of entrepreneur is widening. And, and I don't subscribe to what Gary Vaynerchuk says in that um, you know, you have to be, I think you have to be hustling a hundred percent and it is 24 seven, but I think you can be an entrepreneur and you can enjoy your family and you can have a vacation. So, you know, and he I, does all those things and he does all those things. Right. So, because I don't want it to scare off people who think entrepreneurialism is only about that. I think a lot of people yeah. are successful and have, you know, different, different definitions of entrepreneurialism. Yes. I think, I'm probably talking selfishly about it too. So Sure. I Well, definitely. And I think it is broadening, like you said. And I, I actually remember one definition that I, I think for me, that's probably, I would agree the most with is that entrepreneurship, when you're an entrepreneur, you create something that is bigger than yourself. Exactly. Well, that's pretty broad. And I think that is true. Um, whether you're an uber driver and you're helping people get from place to place that's that's a mission that is a purpose that is bigger than you trying to you know pay your rent with that money and that's something that you've you know uh, while it's an establishment and you're kind of you know, working for Uber, you're at least, you know, you, you can call your own shots and to, to a greater extent than if you're working, you know, as a cog in the wheel at a, at a nine to five. Absolutely. So, so now looking at this years later, it's been almost 10 years. Yeah. In fact, do you, did you think you'd be where you are now? I think, um, no, I don't even know where I'm going to be next year. And that's the truth, you know, that's, it's the, it's the excitement and also the scary part of of being who I am. And I think for a lot of people who are, who consider themselves to be personal brands and thought leaders and and independently employed and are entrepreneurs, solopreneurs. And so I just have to trust that if I keep putting out the good work and I keep connecting with my audience and I'm honest to them and truthful to myself and that I allow myself to have me time and 
work time and being able to just have, I don't believe in balance, but just being able to like have a life so that I can reflect and grow. And I think that it will work. It has worked out and I have to believe that it will continue to work out in the future. Um, it's all up to me. And so far, I think I've proven to myself that I'm somebody who will do whatever it takes. So where do you think your self-motivation comes from? What is it in your background? Because you're from, where are your parents? My parents are from Iran. Okay. And they moved here in, I, I think it was like 1979. My father was coming here to, ed, to get his PhD uh, with the intention that he was going to get the degree and go back to Iran. And this was like 78, 79. My parents had been had just gotten married and the war broke out in Iran. So, and at the time he was in the States and, and seeing what was happening back home and he thought, oh, this is probably not a good time to go back home and start a family there. So he was fortunate in, got, in getting um, a work permit, a visa to stay here after he completed his studies. And that parlayed into like, ultimately getting a citizenship and my mom also, and uh, I was born here. And so very fortunate about that because I would not have the same life, um, nothing close. Right. Um, I think it comes from, it's, I've seen my parents work to, you know, to the bone. I've, I've seen, I know what hard work looks like and I know the benefits and payments and rewards of hard work. And, um, I'm the first child too, so maybe there's a birth order situation going on where I feel like I I, I have uh, I'm more type A, I'm more um, independent. But Are you the oldest of two. I'm the oldest of two, and okay. it's a pretty wide gap. It's uh, ten years difference. Wow. So I um, I don't know. I don't know, Betty. I think it's just that I love to work. I love working. My husband thinks I have one addiction. And that is work. He's like, he, he's just figured it out too. He's like, I, you know, in the beginning of our relationship, he'd say, wow, you have no vices. You don't bite your nails. You don't, you don't, you don't do anything. You don't have, you, I mean, I like to, I, I, everything is in moderation with me. You're like an easygoing chick. Yeah. I'm a cheap date. Like I don't even like get drunk. Like I just, I cruise, you know, and he's, and he, you're low maintenance. I'm low maintenance. And then, but except when it comes to work. And so he said, your, your thing, your, uh, your vice is working. And I think that's true. I like, is that a vice though? You see, I think we, it's interesting, right? Because we, we, and on the one hand, as an entrepreneur, you have to be 24 seven. On the other hand, that means you, you do have to work and you have to love working. I do love working. Uh, so maybe vice isn't the right word. It's more that I just, uh, I can't get enough. You know, because I, especially when you're working for yourself, because there really is no ceiling. There's no, there's no limit to how far you could go and grow. And I have, you know, people out there that I admire that I'm like, wow, one day, you know, maybe I can have those, um, you know, while, you know, I, people like Susie Orman, I'm like, wow, she's created, people are like, are you the next Susie Orman? <laughs> I'm like, no. But I wouldn't mind her revenue stream. (laughs) If I'm completely honest, I wouldn't mind her, her reach. Right. You know, I think uh, that's to be admired. And so I guess I always liked working. I remember when I was 12, I was working as my, my parents were paying me to babysit. And then I first thing, as soon as I could get my work permit, I got that at 15 and a half, started working at the diner. In college, I had a few jobs. Even when I was... And, you know, graduated from school, graduate degree, worked, but still had other jobs on the side. I babysat, I bird sat, I uh, 
freelance wrote articles for papers all while having a nine to five. So I just like to, I think because through work, you really get to connect with people. You get to broaden your horizons. You're investing in yourself. You're learning. You're also, not to mention, making money, which right. is great. But I also think there's something about you that, um, you know, is a difference between someone who's just really good at their job and really great at what they're doing, which is, um, it goes back to originally when we were talking about the podcast, is I remember we were discussing it. I remember this was like in the beginning of, of I forget, maybe it was last year. Mm-hmm. And then six weeks later, the podcast was out. So you execute very well. So you execute. And I think that that's really, really important when it comes to success is execution. It is. And well, thank you for saying that because I definitely felt that launching a podcast was really overwhelming, but I made a goal. I'm really good at creating a goal. And I remember... um, I know what I have to do to, to complete a goal. I know myself, and maybe that's a, a, a trait that's like something that you know is worth perfecting is to kind of know yourself and how you like to work and what distracts you and how to really get focused. And I'm a very visual person, so I when I was launching the podcast, I bought a course to sort of learn the the whole the step by step. But that still wasn't enough for me because it was all in my head, and I needed it to. I needed to to visualize it in my own way. So like it literally had like a whiteboard with, you know, um, diagrams and my own checklists and things like that and deadlines for myself. Like by Thursday, you need to have this. And by by two weeks, you should have this. And I always had a launch date in mind, January 14th, 2015. And so that for me was what kept me going and I was I I knew nothing about podcasts I had to learn and right now I'm in this process where I want to launch a course and I'm more overwhelmed than I was when I was launching the podcast because a course on what a course on uh probably something I think it's gonna be something around earning and how to earn more and because that's what my followers have told me they care more about Mm -hmm. you know is uh I have, a, I have a very cool audience that's educated, makes decent amount of money. They're doing gr- good things with their money, but they want to grow. Yes. They want to get out there and build wealth and just kind of like just kill it. And you kind of can't do it sometimes when you're just making a certain salary. You have to either, you know, change jobs, earn more at the job you're at, start making more money on the side. So the course is really going to envelop all of that and and deliver it. But now the hard thing is like, okay, so now what? What do we, how, What's the system? What's the software? Who do I hire? So you're doing it all over again. So I'm doing it all over again. And it's actually more involved, I think, than a podcast. A podcast is great because I think as long as you have a Wi-Fi connection, a good mic, uh, somehow a way to record it, and you know someone that you trust who can edit it. I mean, certainly you can you can invest more in a podcast, but for uh, at the beginning, you know, if you just want to get out there, there's really not a lot of barrier to entry, but uh, I'm finding that a course, especially for me too, I think my audience expects a level of, a certain level of quality. And it takes a lot more to put, to think about that and, yes. and to put that together. So and we're going to get a little bit meta here then. So what what is the most, what was the thing that you learned about podcasting? Like mm-hmm. what did you learn when you started doing it that surprised you? Um that it is a long haul. You know, I, I, I think I was misled into believing that, you know, with my brand and my visibility, I could just automatically put out a podcast with great guests, 
like Tony Robbins, who's got a billion followers, and I would be able to monetize within six weeks, you know, or I would just be like crushing it in the iTunes store. And I would put people to shame. And not that I was like hoping, like I wasn't, those weren't my literal thoughts, but I definitely thought that things would start to pick up momentum a lot sooner. Um, But it's one of those things where it takes time. And in, this was a year ago when people weren't, there weren't as many podcasts. Now there are even more podcasts. And so it, it took time. And I think um, what I realized was that you just always had to be, you had to make your podcast number one. That was like always what I would talk about to people. It was always top of mind. You really had to nurture it. You didn't just have to, it wasn't like it could just have a, take on a life of its own by itself. You really it needed that R&R, that, that person behind it who was promoting it. And not all types of promotion work. I think the best kinds of promotion were word of mouth sometimes, not like taking out Facebook ads or doing a press release. Um, and of course, asking, which is hard sometimes of me to, I, I have a hard time like asking your guests to help you promote it. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm burdening them with that, but a lot of times they're just more than happy. So doing that, and um, I have transcripts for all my shows, which uh, has benefited me in that sometimes um, if it's a slow news day, some of the business journalists that I know will go into those transcripts and try to find gems to turn into headlines that are like quick 400, 500 word blog posts that then will go viral, that then Yahoo will pick up. Like I literally woke up one morning and there were 25,000 downloads to my podcast and it was like 8 a.m. And I'm like... Did the internet break? Like that's that's a, like what happened? Like something, someone like pressed the wrong button, and like somehow I have twenty five thousand by accident. And what listeners. was that? It was um, Business Insider had picked up one of my interviews and turned it into like a really juicy headline that then like I think Yahoo picked up, and it just was became this amazing awesome uh thing that had led so many people to the podcast and i feel like if i can get just one of those every couple of months it will just build and build and build and you know i think people do expect lightning in a bottle yeah and you just never know when it's gonna no. happen so the rest of the time it is just the grind to it's do a grind. it and honestly to the, do it certainly and the, the things that have been the most un- incredible have come through just me bragging about the podcast to someone, not in, in a in a real braggy way, but um, I remember I hit my first 100,000 downloads in, I don't know, two months or whatever it was, and I was at the Today Show backstage, and I was talking to some people um, about it, and this woman overheard, and she came over and said, wait, what is this? You have a podcast? That's great. You know, tell me about it. And um, she's the, this woman ended up being the founder of TradeZ, which is an online fashion um, resale site. And one of her investors is Tim Ferriss. And she said to me, hey, you should have Tim Ferriss on your podcast. Sounds like it would be totally up. Your audience is Allie. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I really appreciate that you think I would be able to lure in a guest like that, of that caliber. You know, I'll put him in the same bucket as like Oprah and <laughs> the Dalai Lama. And uh, she's like, no, 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 seriously. I know Tim. He is invested in my company. Let me text him right now for you. <laughs> and I'm like, is this really happening? I, you know, and so he got back to her. He got in touch with me. A week later, he was on my podcast. And, and I mean... Not only was that, un- I would never have thought that would have happened, um, 
because I know people who know Tim and they would never do that for me. <laughs> this is a complete stranger who <laughs> was like, I love your energy about this podcast and woman to woman, I want to support you. So she did that for me and that was it's so amazing. Cool. Yeah. And then another like eight months later, I ran into a woman. We became friendly and um, she called me up one day. She said, hey, I have a friend who called me asking if I know any female podcasters who have financial web financial podcasts because they want to um, help them get ads. I was like, really? Okay, yeah, put us in touch. That was ad large, and now they're my advertising partner, and they help to sell out the inventory every month. And it's amazing. I'm finally making money. And that's just because I, again, like you just have to be the biggest cheerleader for your products. And you have to be open and you have to be, yes. you have to keep your ears and your eyes open. Yeah, I don't believe in my husband and I used to think that like, the, you just are lucky sometimes. But I'm like, you create your own luck. You totally create your own luck. Certainly, there's a right, you're in, you know, timing's a, timing plays a big role. Coincidence plays a big role. But why else were you there? You, you know, it's like you, you, you can, when you have your eyes and ears open, you can identify opportunities when others are not paying attention and they miss out on them. And call that luck, call that what you want, but you have to give yourself some credit there. Absolutely. Okay, so, so Farnoosh, tell me a little bit about um, the CNBC show, Follow the Leader. Um, what are you learning? Who's, who's on it so far? And what are you learning from mm-hmm. these leaders? So very excited to uh, be in this incredible series on CNBC called Follow the Leader. And what we hope to do is to give you a never before seen look at how entrepreneurs think and why they are successful. You know, typically when you interview someone, you get what, 30 minutes, maybe an hour if you're lucky. The PR person is standing in the corner, hanging on to every one of your words, making sure there are nothing that's said that's like problematic. Um, So now we get to go 48 plus hours, sometimes longer with these entrepreneurs to work, to home, from place to place to really observe. And what are you learning from these leaders? I think the the most successful CEOs, and and, and in this case, you know, the founding founding men and women of these companies is that they're really good at knowing what problems they should care about and what ones they shouldn't care about. And I think when you're just starting out, you care about everything. You're you're overzealous. You are very uh, emotional. Everything matters. You want to micromanage everything. And I think that um, it takes a lot to step outside of that and say, this is what I'm going to care about and this is what I'm not going to care about. And this is what these are the kind of meetings that I want to be involved in and ones that I don't want to. And surrounding yourself with a team that you can trust to and to take over everything else that you because you're only one person and you have only so much bandwidth and you have what your strengths are. You're not perfect at everything. So I think being able to accept that and play to that is is, is a characteristic that is unique to, to some of the most successful entrepreneurs. And have you learned that yourself? You've taken that advice to heart too? I think so. I'm still learning, I think. I have an, a great assistant right now. She's full-time with me. And, um, you know, I need to be patient because she has to learn the, the processes and she has to also learn, you know, and she is just a fast learner, but you know, there's some growing pains. And so you have to be able to slow down in order to speed up. And that's what, you know, where we are right now and it, but it's going really well. Um, but I also think that I've made some mistakes in hiring people in the past as far as, you know, whether it was a short term project or a contractor, because I took, I just took the word of other people that this person's great. 
and I didn't really do my due diligence and didn't really learn about them Mm -hmm. so much as like, how are you going to help me? Right. And I should have taken the time to really feel out who is this person? What do they care about? How do they think about their work and the world sometimes too? You can learn a lot about somebody just based on how they live their own personal lives. And I find that my leaders that I followed know their employees and their staff, and at least the people that are very close to them, not just for what they can do for to them and how they've been performing at work, but they actually know what kind of personality these people are. They know what makes them tick. They know everything about their family life. And so I think for them, it's just they, they want to know as much to inform them before they hire people. And that's something that you that you I have learned that you have learned that I've also learned that they're just like us, Betty. <laughs> you know, the goal of the show was to uh, discover what makes them superhuman. You know, because not everybody can start a company like Birchbox or Warby Parker, and not everyone becomes a billionaire or has a company that's valued at a billion dollars. These people did. So, what differentiates them? Why haven't others achieved the same level of success? And there are certainly lessons to be told there. But I remember coming home many times and saying, you know, I I feel like, like for example, Neil and Dave from Burst from Warby Parker, the co-founders. You kind of want to just hang out with them. Like they're normal guys. They're low key. They're quite. They're they're soft spoken. They're not these, you know, eccentric. Uh, you know, we sort of think about who are behind these companies. Like they're these like crazy visionaries and they're eccentric and they're maybe they're out of this world. And no, they're very down to earth. They, it's like you went to college with some buddies and some of them became billionaires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, man, I should have, I should have been working hard on some ideas. <laughs> I should have been sitting in the computer lab with some idea making. Right. And that's the difference is that they, they wanted more out of life and they wanted to, they were curious and that, you know, and they, they ran with their curiosity and then they saw the potential and they got excited and they found the right people to hook up with. And, um, they didn't have it all figured out when they first started. Nobody really did, did, but it, it, you know, they, they, they didn't, it didn't get too scared about, you know about taking the about risk failure. I think yeah, yeah I think were- about the failure part of it I was talking to an entrepreneur last night who said I'm not afraid of making all of my mistakes because I will just make mistakes I think when you get hung up on the fact that you've made a mistake that's the mistake right absolutely failure is part and parcel and it's 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 going to happen so just anticipate it but you're absolutely right that the failure is in the dwelling of it and in the when you fail feeling as though you can no longer go forward and no, it's a learning process. So do you find, because I know, you know, a, a good part of your audience and the books that you've written are, you know, the, the ideal consumer is a woman, mm-hmm. right? And you speak a lot to women, you know, to women uh, audiences. So tell me if there's differences you notice between women entrepreneurs and male entrepreneurs and just also, you know, just yourself in terms of, you know, you being you know an entrepreneur yourself, like how you think you might differ from others. I think that if I was a man, sometimes I wish I was a man only because, um, and the, and this is maybe I don't really wish I was a man, but you know my my, my <laughs> place. No, I love being a woman, but I think that um, when I when I see other male entrepreneurs, they can work until ten o'clock at night and go home, and no one. And, and don't and they wouldn't feel bad about it you know at least that's my guess but 
I rush out of here at four o'clock because I want to go home and I feel like I would disappoint my family if I wasn't there. And, um, and that's okay. Like I've made peace with that. You know, I, I become really efficient between my hours at, at work and when I go home, but I feel as though as a woman, I want to be at the forefront of my career, but also as a mom and as a wife and, and there are only so many hours in the day. And so I feel like uh, there's sometimes a push pull that I think is more prevalent with women who are entrepreneurs and family oriented than men, because traditionally men have gotten a pass at, you know, men, you got to go work, do the work thing. You know, if you can come home, that'd be great. But if you got to work, you got to work. You know, we understand that. But sometimes I feel like women, we don't get the same, uh, we don't get the same pass in life. Mm. And so it's why it's really important. But do you think that holds you back? Um, No, because I don't consider becoming because I consider myself winning right now. You know, I'm able to like have, I've designed the life that I really want. You know, would I be happy not having a husband and a family? So I could be working 10 times more, which would be the case. No, I would be so miserable because that doesn't fulfill me. Cause I know myself to this. I, I know that much about myself is that as much as I would love to one day achieve more. And I do, um, not at the price and of not having a, a, a stable home life and people that love me and I, that I can love back. Um, so, and that's just me, you know, I have female friends who aren't married, who, um, don't or are married, don't have children who don't have the same responsibilities at home that I do that mm-hmm. can then go and spend, you know, three, four, 10 more hours at work in a day and maybe make more money than I do. But it's all relative, you know, and but I will say the point of this is just to say that it's really important that if you are a man or a woman and your ambition in life is to create a, an amazing career and work at that and give a lot of yourself to that then you need to find a partner that supports that, understands that, and helps to make sure that, you know, you can do that. But 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 again, that you, you have a, an agreement as well that, like, you will see each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? That they're supportive, but at the same time, you still care, you know, you still keep each other as a priority. Yeah, like there's an, there's an understanding there. There right. has to be an understanding, you know. I, like, so, so, so what, I mean, I, I always hear... VCs say this, you know, to their investors, or I'm sorry, to their entrepreneurs, which is like, what's your exit plan? What's your end? You know, what is it that we, you know, what will you sell out at and wow. say, you know, say I'm done because there is an exit plan. There's an exit, there's an end. And I, I don't care what entrepreneur says, I'm here for the long term. There's an end that they, you know, they're, they're, that they're an exit that they're looking at. So do you, I always wonder about that for people. Like, is there an exit plan? Like, is there, is there a number at, at which point you say, I'm done. This is good. Hmm. I'm happy. Wow. A number. If someone just said to me here, well, what would they, what I, what would I be giving up in exchange? That's what I want to know. <laughs> your that, entire, your entire life and IP and everything. Yeah, like my intellectual property, my, my heart and my soul. Um, Cause some people say, if I made 20, if I, if I made 20 million, I'd be done. I'm done. Yeah. I mean, look, I, um, I have the f- great fortune of loving what I do. I don't know if I would 
if I, if I would, I would take the money and be like, but can I still work for you? <laughs> could I still like come in every day and like check emails and um, <laughs> right. go to meetings because I need to get out of the house because <laughs> I would go crazy. Um, so yeah, $20 million would be awesome. And I think that I would definitely not be worried about having a course to launch in the fall, you know, but at the same time, I think that I want to live up to what people um, have come to love and respect and expect from me, you know, which is that I'm there for them. I give advice. I, I want to, um, create, uh, transparency around, around money and make people feel empowered about their financial futures and, you know, think about not just outside the box, but how to flip the box upside down. And when it comes to their financial well-being and potential, I want to be there for people. So whether that means I take that money and, go on the road and do it in, in, in a different way, you know, travel and meet people one-on-one and less is more. Maybe that's what I would do, but I haven't thought about I, ever about selling. I don't even know what I would sell, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but, um, it's more like when you say, you say, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah, twenty million would be good. <laughs> be nice. I feel like I imagine that would be good for a lot of that people. That would be good. Yeah, I could invest that and I could live off a dividend. All right. That'd be nice. <laughs> and I guess just I mean, you know, a final thing you know, what kind of advice do you give? Like what are, what's the most common question you get from people, whether they're men or women? And what is that question and what advice do you get, particularly when it comes to money issues? Yeah. Well, uh, I can tell you because I've gotten over 500 questions from people up since last year and people, uh, I've surveyed my, my audience. And I think the number one pain point is how do I make more money? People want to make more money. Salaries have been stagnant. But everyone wants to make more money. Everyone wants to make more money. And we, I think it's, uh, tempting now because you see all these people, you hear these stories, you know, it seems like overnight success. It's not, but it's these online entrepreneurs and people who have these side gigs. And um, But are they asking you, how do I make, are they saying, how did you make more money? No, they want to know, how can I make more money? How can I either ask for that raise that I've always wanted? Got it. How do I create that side revenue stream that's going to help to pay off my bills and maybe send my kids to school or just give me some more breathing room? They want to, and they really feel like earning more. And I, I think I agree with this too, is that earning more is a, is a faster way to building wealth than just saving more. You know, you can, you should save, but there's a limit to that. There's no limit to how much you can earn. So teaching people how to leverage their skills and think big and use the free resources that you have at your fingertips, the, the internet, you know, um, your assets to, to really increase your your earnings potential and also how to negotiate, knowing your self-worth, speaking up for yourself, those kinds of skills. But Farnoosh, is that the right question to ask? I mean, I'm not saying, I'm saying, is that the right way for people to approach it is how do I earn more? Or should it the question really be that they should be asking themselves, how do I make myself more valuable? Yeah, I think that's what ultimately we teach. That's what it is, That right? is what it is. Yes. How do I make more valuable? But... But also, if you want to make more money, then go get freelance gigs, go get, you know, go do this, go do that. And you can, you know, you'll see your paycheck increase, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about how do I make myself more valuable? So that I can make more. So that I can make more. <laughs> Let's not forget, so, you right. want to make the money. Right, right. Yeah. But how do I, right, how do, whether it's, um, 
making myself more valuable at work, making myself more valuable in the marketplace. And so that I can attract the money that I deserve. But also I don't believe in just law of attraction. You have to actually go out there and do the work. So that's a big part of my message is um, how to, yes, make yourself more attractive and to really believe in what you're really worth, but actually how to do the work so that you get the money that you, that you are deserved. Next week on Radiate, another fascinating entrepreneur. He's the creator of what I like to call the Victoria's Secret for men. Have you heard about these? He's the man behind Tommy John. He talks about going from medical device salesman to CEO of a 50-person company. How Tom Patterson convinced retailers like Nima Marcus to sell his undershirts without an ounce of experience in the clothing industry. You are not going to want to miss this podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. If you liked what you heard, please send in your comments at radiateinc.com slash feedback. Also, review us on iTunes, subscribe to us, and find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. See you next week on Radiate.